Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Tim Gaither Podcast. This is episode 32. My guest today is going to be James Johan. I've known James the entire 19 years of my comedy career. He was always kind of like an older brother to me. He'd already been doing comedy 10 years when I started, but he was still young. He was, uh, I think he started when he was like 18 or 19, so he was only uh, late 20s, early 30s when I started. I'm not good at math, but... We're going to have him on the uh, podcast today, and James is just one of the funniest guys I've ever known on stage or off. Um, If you get him bitching about something, uh, it's the funniest shit you'll ever hear. He's not really like that on stage. He's more of a uh, happy, um, kind of a lovable dumbass. I hope he doesn't mind me saying that. He's not not a dumbass on stage, but he certainly doesn't. uh, He's just fucking funny. Um, but if you listen, you'll see just how smart he is. Um, so he might play like he doesn't know a lot of shit when he's on stage, but, uh, off stage, he knows some pretty big words. <laughs> um, turned me on to some good books. Anyway, we're going to call him right now and, uh, you can just see how smart he is. Hello? James Johan. Hello? What's up, buddy? What are you doing? Not much. Um, I was just telling everybody about what a smarty pants you were, and how you know a bunch of big words, and and how you you kind of play like a I don't know if a, if a lovable, not dumbass on stage, but you definitely don't don't pretend that you know a lot of shit. <laughs> well, I, I know too many people that pretend they know more than they should. So. <laughs> Fuck yeah, I just spent a week with him in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah, well he told me a thing about the way he designed his stand-up show. He's like, you got some fast balls, you got some slow balls, and then you try to throw most of them right down the middle, you know? Dude, Jason Dixon has, I tried to get him on the podcast and it never worked out, but I wanted to have him on, I wanted to have him on because... I don't quote anyone more than I do Jason Dixon. He has more. Really. He has more. Um, like you just said, he has the softball thing. He he has a lot of sports analogies when it comes to comedy. He's got the degree of difficulty. He's like, yeah, it's easy to kill when you're doing fucking swan dives. Try a goddamn gainer and see how you do. <laughs> Clubs. 
Yeah. And so that makes all the difference when a comedian actually runs a club, uh, you know, because they, they know what comedians, you know, want or need, you know, it seems like they're a little more in tune with what we, what, what helps us, you know. Yeah, or if you happen to eat a big shit burger, they might know why, and it might, they not, might not blame yeah. it on you. <laughs> yeah, so I've always liked it when a, when a, when a comic kind of has gone over to the other side, because they see our, our side more, so. Yeah, Dixon's got a lot of great stuff. I remember when I was on stage and, uh, or I was off stage, I was waiting to go on, and somebody was eating it in front of me, and he goes, uh, he goes, now the crowd is like an abused housewife. <laughs> he goes, exactly. he goes, they they want to laugh at you, they want to trust you, but they're scared too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was walking up the street with him one night, and uh, Mark could tell Dixon we just left Stanford in Kansas City and for a while I had started and I was doing pretty well and um, I was one of the newer guys and I, I, I just was having good shows kind of consistently and a new kid came in a guy named Anthony Spock who I think you also know and Anthony was the hot new guy that just showed up and he was really like getting a getting a, you know, a lot of attention and everyone was like oh who's this guy you know and we were walking up the street after a show one night and Dixon was walking beside me and we were like oh how does it feel not to be the big hot shit in town anymore? <laughs> I was Yeah, he he did the same thing for me, and I I remember thanking him one night, and he was like, "Yeah, no problem. Just make sure you send the elevator back down too." And you know, Well, the first time that you and I, um, you know, he took you to the Omaha Funny Bone, and you took me to the Omaha Funny Bone, and I got a guest spot, and I don't even think Colleen watched me, but <laughs> I was all nervous about the shit, and she didn't, and she didn't even, yeah, I was so fucking nervous, and then she didn't even watch, and I'm like, God damn it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I get she she booked me just because you told me you told her that, that I was funny or whatever, and anyway, the first gig, the first road gig I ever did was. Uh, I was emceeing on the road for Polly Shore, and you were featuring. And I remember, yeah. I got a hundred and fifty dollars. You got five hundred, and Polly Shore got thirty thousand for the week. Yeah. And yeah. and uh, I remember looking at you, like I remember asking you how much you made, and you told me you got five hundred dollars. And I was looking at you like you made five hundred dollars to tell jokes. And you were looking at me, and you were looking at me like, "Yeah, asshole, that's what I made. Go fuck yourself." But at the time, I just thought it was the coolest. I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world at the time that someone would give you five hundred bucks, and you were doing twenty-five minute sets, and they were all great shows. And I'm like, "Man, that's just fucking the coolest thing ever." And you're like, "Yeah, yeah." You've been at it ten years though, so you were like, "Yeah, it's not as cool as it used to be, but." <laughs> I mean, I was probably 19, you know, or 20 at the, at the oldest, and 
have any. I, I just wanted to get on stage and and tell jokes. I, I didn't think about getting on the road. I didn't think about getting paid. You know, and I was just doing my open mics. And then at one point, I think one of the managers said, "Hey, we'll, we want you to MC a show this weekend, or maybe work the whole weekend." And when they said, "We'll give you like fifty bucks," and I was just kind of blown away. I'm like, "What? You're going to pay me to do this? Like, that's even making it better." You know, I mean, that's how kind of naive I was about comedy. I just was. I I waited till every Monday to go down there and do my new three minutes. You know, and that's all I cared about. I didn't want to get on the road. I didn't care if they paid me. I just wanted my friends to see this crazy, stupid stuff I thought of during the week. Well, how 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 old were you when you started? Like 18, 19? Yeah, well, it was right after high school. I couldn't find a job I liked. I wasn't going to go to college. I just said wasn't my thing, and I don't think my parents could afford it anyway. And one night, my mom's like, "Do you think you're so damn funny? Watch you go down the comedy club and find out." But she actually said that, so she took me down to watch a show. We saw some local Kansas City guys. Uh, it was David Master and Rob Leiter. It was the first show I ever saw at the Overland Park Stanford. And we watched the show, and uh, I looked at my mom. I'm like, I, I want to try this next week. And I asked around, and they said the open mic was in Westport. And uh, I went down next Monday and got on the list. You know, so I, I was probably, I may have been 20. So. Yeah. I was uh, I was 23 and I was a little more I planned it out a little more because I I went ahead and gone to college and wasted all that fucking time and money and and I was like you know I'm gonna I'm gonna be a comedian for a living because the closer I got to being a teacher I was kind of shitting my pants about it like I'm I'm not gonna actually be a fucking teacher what am I gonna do and you know that was just something to say for four years and then came time to do it and I'm like yeah I don't know about this. Um, so I really just wasted five years of my life. I should have just started doing open mic nights, but right from the start, I was like, I'm going to do this for a living. And for the first two years, I don't give a shit if I make a nickel. And I think just, just having, I just want to learn how to do this, which is something that people don't want to do anymore. They want to like get paid before they've even been on stage. And it's like, well, that ain't how, that ain't how it works. God damn it. Um, but anyway, um, what the heck was I saying about, oh, MCing. When I first started MCing, I remember telling you, I said, uh, I go, you know, I hate MCing. I hate having to wear khakis. And you go, khakis? Why do you have to wear khakis? And I was like, I thought you had to dress up. And you're like, I don't wear fucking khakis. And I'm like, <laughs> and then I just started wearing jeans and whatever I wanted and being more comfortable. And then I started having better MC sets. But uh, you were pretty, uh, you were in, you were a lot more important to me than you may have realized as far as, like, taking cues from you on shit like that. Like, oh, Johan doesn't wear, Johan wears jeans, I can wear jeans. And Johan wears yeah, a hat, I, I can wear a hat. I don't really ever objected to on stage of guys that wear, like, shorts all the time. And it looks like it's a laundry day. I'm like, you can do a little better than that, can't you, buddy? Sure, you know? yeah. I mean, you gotta, you gotta be your character, but a grown man should have pants on. Unless you're, like... <laughs> You know, I guess if you're Gabriel Iglesias, you know, um, but until yeah, you... Fits yeah. But, you know, these guys that come in and stonewash, cut off jeans, and, you know, some wrinkly ads, Def Leppard shirt, I'm like, this, you know, but then again, you know, I'm not a fashion critic, but I never thought you had to dress up, you know, I always like guys that did, I remember Mark Gross, uh, back in, back when he was doing stand-up a lot, he always had a suit, always a suit, and it fit his character, and Craig Peters dressed really nice, and I always thought that was... It's just their style, you know, which I, but I don't think you ever had to do that. I think you could look, you know, presentable. Maybe that's old school. Maybe now you can, you know, I saw a guy, I've seen some people on stage lately. I'm just like, I can't believe he's actually wearing those clothes in front of people in general, let alone on, under a spotlight, you know? Yeah, there's only like a Walmart, Walmart guy. 
there's only a few things I stick to when it comes to like any kind of a dress code is like I'll definitely wear pants instead of shorts. I try not to wear anything with a, I try not to wear any t-shirts that are like funny or even anything that you have to read too much because especially these days crowds are dumber than they used to be. <laughs> and it's like if you distract them a little bit with something on your shirt, like if some dumbass is trying to read what your shirt says from the back row the whole show, he's not listening to what you say. And that might be a, a subtle thing to me, but I kind of feel it. And the other thing is uh, not really dressed, but Herb. Do you remember Herb, the guy that used to sit in the back, the old guy? Yes, I remember very well. Dude, he was around from like vaudeville days, like literally. And he yeah. was like, don't work, don't take a bottle on stage. You look like a bum. Use a glass. And I and ever yeah, since he then. Told me the same thing, yeah. yeah, I wonder how, I wonder you think he's still alive? I mean, he was fairly old then. It, no, I was actually in correspondence with him. We I've written him a couple letters cuz he was really helpful to me in, in my early years. He, he kind of hung around the club, he'd seen comedy. He was a comedy fan, you know. Yeah. He can, he, there's a bit of few of those guys over the years like Troy Winter that used to have manage a couple clubs. Troy's a comedy fan, you know. These yeah. guys really like it. They're into it. Um you know, there's been a lot of managers that don't come out of the green room to watch the, uh, <laughs> watch anyone sit, you know. Yeah. But um you know, these guys that sit and watch your show every night, and, and her gave me a lot of good advice. I don't know if he's still alive. I imagine probably not. I don't know what happened to him. It, it kind of breaks my heart to think about him not, not being alive anymore, because I really did like him, and especially now that, you know, I've been doing it as long as I have and all that. I mean, he's one of those guys that I would love to do a set in front of and just have him go, I'm really proud of how far you've come, because he was always really oh, yeah. nice to me. And I always respected the hell out of his opinion, and I didn't want to dress like a bum in front of him. Not like you know, like it's one thing to wear a t-shirt or something, but you know, make sure the shit fits, you know, somewhat, and and you know, stuff like that. But he was, uh, he he knew a lot. Of, he he was he was a classy guy too. That fucker might still be alive. He took pretty good care of himself. He wasn't that damn old. Yeah, no, he might be around. We should ask around and find out about him. But that's the thing about um. I mean, I, feel, I don't know about other comedy scenes. I know a lot about a lot of them, like, but uh, I know Kansas City was very. I mean, and I, I have a little bit of a pet theory here. It may be wrong, but I usually am. But you know, uh, when Last Comic Standing was getting started and those shows were on TV, you know, all these comedy clubs tried to follow suit and turn every every open mic into a contest. And now it's you're gonna vote, you're gonna bring friends. And I feel like before all that happened, the, the scenes were more cohesive. People were trying to help each other. You'd get advice from older guys, older people that have been doing it longer. You know, and, and they really they really instruct you on the right way to do things. They'll let you know if you were doing things wrong. But after they turned everything into a contest, which a lot of clubs did. I mean, I remember Indianapolis, their open micers would meet, most of them would meet at like a bar an hour before the show or so and, and have a drink and go over everybody's material and they'd, and they'd give each other taglines. And then uh, they would, uh, most of them would even meet after the show and go, okay, that worked, that didn't work. I mean, it was a really cohesive scene. Everyone was trying to help each other get better. And then once they turned the whole thing into a, last, a local last comic standing contest and you, you, win the, you win it and you get to open for Tommy Chong, and no one helped each other anymore. It was like, now it's dog-eat-dog and I'm not going to give you a funny line. And I, I feel like it just kind of killed the, the you know, cohesiveness of, the, of a lot of scenes that I was a part of, at least. Yeah, that's true. It's it's really, uh, you know, I, I I bitch a lot on this podcast about the state of the business and all that, so I, I want to try not to as best I can, but it's sure not easy sometimes. <laughs> well, it's changing. It keeps changing, and I feel like now the thing is uh, it's a very PC crowd, the younger the younger people coming in. What's up? Um, 
I mean, I hate to say this. I mean, maybe this makes me sound like a dinosaur, but I used to be able to go to a college, do a college show, talk about titties and beer all night, and have a great time with the kids. You know, now it's like I feel like every line out of my mouth might be scrutinized, or you know, is that is that racist? Or I mean, not that I'm racist, but I, I you never know which way they're going to spin when you say sure. it. And make maybe I don't know. I just feel like this comedy is kind of really under a microscope right now. And, there's a lot of ways to take, uh, you know, a lot of jokes, and people usually can find a way to find something offensive, and it's like, you know, I've seen some people called out as being racist that I just, in my heart, I know they're not, you know, I'm like, how can you call that person that? Well, I was just hanging out with Dixon, and there was something going on about uh, Dwight Slade, who I've never met, but I've always heard just awesome things about, and an, an MC apparently had, like, Called him, the, I think it was the guy who emceed the show called him out and said something he said was racist. And I said to Dixon, right. I was like, I cannot imagine being an MC and having the balls when I was emceeing to call out a headliner on anything they said, much less to like put them on blast on social media. You know, I was just like, I just like the whole, a lot of respect for not your elders, so to speak, but like the craft and like, you know. Like, a lot of people, a lot of people, open micers don't watch the professional shows, that kind of thing. I'm like, that's what you want to, that's the level you're trying to get to, right? That's who you need to watch, dumbass, not your, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'll sound like I'm 100 if I start talking about it, too, but it's just, a lot of things have changed, and a lot of YouTube people are pushing, pushing uh, some really good comics out, and it's, it's not... It's not even just not fair. It's just bullshit. It's like go have a, go to a goddamn bookstore and have a meet and greet. Leave this shit to us. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of it's changing. Um, I mean, just that you mentioned YouTube, and you know, you have these people now, and you know, more power to them. But I've had, I've actually had a Saturday Night Show bumped, uh, one of my shows bumped because uh, some YouTuber with a big followers had, had come into town and was going to sell out the room. He had enough followers on YouTube. To come in, and he's not—he wasn't a comedian per se, but he had—he was entertaining, and he, he got the comedy club to book him. And at me as a as a stand-up comic, and now I'm giving up my Saturday night show to this person who's just a YouTube star, and it's happening more and more frequently. I'm seeing these clubs, you know, it, for better or for worse, they want butts in the seats. They don't really care what's on stage for the most part, as long as the seats are full and the crowds are happy. So here you sit and you'll sit in a, and maybe try to write a clever joke or a funny line or a funny bit. And then you see a guy on YouTube who's stuck the leaf blower in his underwear and blows his nuts out the other side. He's got a million likes because he's just <laughs> doing crazy stuff. Yeah. And next thing you know, he's got your, he's got your weekend, in, you know, Dayton or something or wherever. Um, it's just, it's the face of it's changing. And, and the internet has a lot to do with it, I think. You know, if you're an internet star... That's all you need. You don't need any club experience. You don't need to do work behind you. They'll just like, hey, this guy's gonna fill this this club this weekend. You know, three hundred seats four times. I get all I, I get all the numbers thing. What I don't understand is how they get those numbers in the first place. I mean, some of them are just some of it such shit. It's so fucking bad. And I'm not trying to be just. I'm not trying to just be bitter about it. I just don't get it, man. I'm just like, why? Why is that? You know, how come you, how come you can put up a really quality stand-up clip and it not get any track tracking, but that, you know, some horse shit, I mean, like you said, literally gets uh, a million fucking followers. Like that, it, yeah. 
I'm going to start talking about Cash Me Outside Girl, and I just, I'm not going to go down that road. I'm just not going to let myself. Well, but it's not just her, you know, but she, you know, it's, it's just, it's just who came Remember the woman that put on the Chewbacca mask and got so tickled, but, you know, and she was, she was a star for, you know, 15 minutes, and I heard she was signing autographs for, you know, $100 an autograph or some crazy amount of it. She was, getting, you know, but, you know, it's just because she made a funny viral video, and she got her little 15 minutes of fame, and, and now she's kind of a footnote to history, but... You know, it, it, and you never know what's going to go viral. You, I put stuff online. I go, this will get a million likes. People will love this, and it just gets three. It's usually, you know, my sister and my brother. <laughs> and, but then you see other stuff. It's like, wow, that that really took off. You know, that really it, it struck a nerve with people. And, but you never, how can you gauge what's going to catch on? There's just no way. It's, yeah, I, I've driven myself crazy trying to go. What will what will really catch on with people? And you know, it's it's just hit and miss. It's just you never know. What have you been... This happened to you recently that you got bumped off a show? Um, I would say it was about two years ago. Um, I was doing some shows in Indianapolis, and Rufan, uh, who runs the club there, said we have... And it was... I don't remember... The, I think it was a guy... Um, I didn't go to the show that night, but um, I was actually kind of happy to have the night off. But at the same time, I'm like, well, this is this is the changing face of comedy. But he was... I think he was a wine guy, and he had a, like a thing on the YouTube where he, he drank wine and discussed wine, and then he was kind of funny. And, and but at any rate, he uh, he filled the room, you know. And she says, "Well, he's just a YouTuber." And uh, I, I, over over the course of the last couple of years, I've seen that happening more and more. I'll see these people that are getting headline spots at comedy clubs that are not not comedians by any you know traditional sense of the word. They're just YouTube people that people will come out and see. Well, I, I was just talking to Justin before I talked to you, and and I was saying last week on my on my podcast I was talking about this stuff, and and I said, you know what though, I'm gonna stop bitching about it. You know, if they're doing, if they're, whatever they're doing, the YouTube fuckers or whatever, um, good for them. You know, I gave this little speech about how I wasn't gonna worry about it anymore, and here it is a week later, and I'm I'm bitching about it. But I also instead of just complaining about it. God damn it, we've been talking about it forever, but, and it's very premature to say, but what if you and me and Justin and I know a, a black woman named Alicia Cooper, who is fucking hilarious, and I haven't even talked to Alicia yet, but the four of us together are the same but different, and all of us are headliners, all of us are really funny, it, especially in today's climate, wouldn't that be the best tour ever? You know, I think it'd be a great show, and I could think of um, you know a hundred other people that would be great as a, a group that went out and, and and you buy a ticket to any of those shows, and you would get a, a night of comedy that would be unbelievable. But you turn and look at it from a club or a theater's perspective, how are we going to sell tickets? Nobody knows these names, you know. And that's the thing, you know. How many times have you gone up to someone or someone comes to you after a show? And they said, oh, we were here a couple weeks ago and we saw this guy. He was really funny. I'm like, oh, really? What was his name? Oh, I don't know. He wore a hat. You know, they don't remember. They may see a wonderful show by some, you know, no-name comic that they really love. But then you ask them two weeks later, what was the guy's name? I can't remember. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They don't remember my my name usually right after the show, which, which is fine. But if we... If we put promotion into it and put some actual work into promoting it, I mean, that can be the beauty of the internet. Like, if you package it right and sell it the right way, um, and, you know, we, we have talked about this stuff forever, but it would be a quality show, and, man, I'm tired of 
bullshit getting famous. You know, it should be, or at least, you know, I mean, I mean, it really is. It's just, it's it, we owe it to America. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yes, God damn it, we owe it to America. To uh, and and not only that, but think how diverse. If if it caught on and we were able to, you know, I, I mean. This is probably something we should talk about off the podcast, but I, I'm going to call a, a booker that I know and just ask him to give give us, if you're interested, or whoever, a shot at doing that. And if if I know that, if I have the incentive to like, okay, well, if we sell out four shows, then we're going to get booked in ten other clubs, I'll sell that motherfucker out somehow. I mean, you know, if I have the right incentive, um, and the, the hard part... It, or it doesn't have to be a hard part because these days with the internet, I mean, all we need are four clips and a good, you know, we'll talk about it. But if you want to, but seriously, man, I mean, it's just, it, it can't be impossible to do that, to put four really good comics, diverse, you know, to, to draw a black audience and a redneck audience, if that's what you want to call them together. To me, that would be the ultimate crowd, you know? Sure. stardom i would just love to have a a good enough product that did keep us busy 12 to 25 weeks a year just doing those kind of shows and uh not not that that's all we would do you could still have room for other stuff but to to work with people that you know you're gonna like every week and there not be any real egos on that show like i wouldn't give a shit what position i went i would MC a show um you know, none of that crap would matter. And just do, like, 15, 25, 25, 25. That would be the best 90-minute show 
ever. And there's got to be there's got to be some value in in it in, in having a really good product. You know, like I got nothing against those impractical joker guys, but they're not even stand up comics, are they? Big-ass tour bus, not not four smelly musicians in a van in a van together. I remember uh, one of the best one of the best James Johan stories is uh, I called you up one I called you up one day and you go I figured it out Gaither I figured it out and I'm like what and he's like I figured out the secret of this business you just keep you just keep bitching. Because you never let them think you're happy, no matter what. One of these days, I'm gonna be on a, I'm gonna be on a yacht with two bitches blowing me, a cold beer in my hand, and I'll be like, I didn't say all that. Yes, you. Let, let me fin let me finish. Well, here's the thing. Here's the, what I mean by that. I mean, have you ever been on the phone negotiating some contract for your money or whatever, and then they leave the money up to you or something? They go, well, how much would it take to get you to come to Kalamazoo, Michigan? And, you know, you're going, how much do I feel like I'm worth? And you let's say you go, okay, I need $700. And then they immediately go, okay, great. And you're like, oh, shit, I should have said, you know, he agreed to 700 that easily. I should have said 1500 you know? Yeah, every now and again I do do that, and I'm shocked with how much, like, holy shit, I just got that? I could do that all the time? Okay. <laughs> but you didn't let me finish the story. It's fucking hilarious, and you didn't let me finish it. You go... You go, I figured it out. You just keep bitching, no matter what. One of these days, I'll, I'll be on a yacht, two girls blowing me, I'll be drinking a cold beer, and I'll go, God damn, it's hot out here. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people are never satisfied in this business, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a valid point, and uh, maybe a put in a crass way, but... Yeah. You know, it, <laughs> it also goes, goes to what you, what you want in this business. If you feel like that's the only thing that's going to make you happy, then yeah, but... Um, my, my attitude, I'm happy to stay busy, I'm happy to have enough money to pay my bills, I'm happy to have, you know, but you do see people take off, that you go, really, that person, uh, getting this, uh, getting all the limelight right now, and you go, what am I doing wrong, and I think it's the wrong attitude, because, it's, I don't, I've never seen comedy as a competition, you know, I've never wanted it to be that, I, I have funny friends, I have I know a lot of funny people. I never want to say I'm funnier than anyone else. I mean, the people that get into that kind of mindset... That's why I don't really do festivals, because it's basically just a fucking contest. And I really don't yeah. I really don't enjoy doing a comedy contest, especially because there's so many variables involved. You know, it's not always who's the funniest. It's like you said, who brought people, or who did this, or who, you know, was the weirdest, or, you know, depends on what they're looking for. So then someone always ends up pissed off. <laughs> I don't know. Walmart and, and, and upload your 
your conversations. And, you know, people have, you, there's really a chance for so much more exposure now. So the internet's really a double-edged sword, you know. It takes people that, and honestly, some people that shouldn't have as much of a voice, you know, some of these people that get on there and just rant and rave and have bad ideas and conspiracy theories. And I mean, but everybody has a pretty much an equal voice on the internet, which it takes a lot out of the equation. It takes a lot out of, you know, okay, these people are being considered for shows because they paid their dues. They've been doing stand-up a long time. They know, you know, they know how to handle a crowd and what to do on stage. Now it's like everybody with a microphone can uh, have a podcast and get a following. And then next thing you know, hey, I can fill that room. <laughs> you know, yeah. I've never stepped on stage before, maybe, but um, I got six hundred people that want to see me at you know the funny the funny bin or whatever. So. <laughs> yeah. Do you uh, do you want to tell us the the Bur- the Burgess uh, Boston story or what was it he sold he he said to you and you pretty much moved like the next day? Well, I was really pushing the headline. I had the time. I was still in middle act in Kansas City. I had the time to headline. I was ready to headline. I just. It wasn't about the money. I just wanted the spot. I wanted to get into the 45-minute spot in an hour, and I wanted to be the name on the marquee. You know, and it's just, I finally got to the point where I felt like I was ready. And Brian Burgess, who managed the club, just wouldn't bump me up. And I would see comics come through week after week, and I'm like, really? This person can headline and not me? And I was getting a little salty about it. Because a few of these people, you know, for better or for worse, I just felt weren't doing anything that I couldn't do. Yeah. And I was sitting at a bar in the basement, uh, the bottom part of Sanford's in the restaurant there, and uh, Brian Burgess, I was drinking a beer, and I was angry. I was angry at Brian, because he had just told me no, he's not going to headline me. And I think he knew I was mad, and he came down and sat down next to me, and he gave me a bit of a speech, and he said, uh, he goes, what that's going to do me to bump you up here? You're going to be the big fish in the small pond. He goes, you need to get the hell out of here. He goes, I wouldn't even finish with the beer. He goes, get on a plane and go anywhere else. He goes, try it somewhere else for a couple years, and when you come back, I'll headline you. Um, but, um, but that was his little uh, speech to me. And it made a lot of sense. It made a lot of sense to me. I was like, well, it, he's right. You know, what, what's it gonna, what good is it going to do me to be the Kansas City headliner guy? Yeah. You know, big deal. People can see you as a middle act anyway. And it, it, on that kind of advice, I, I did. I packed up and I moved to Boston for a few years and tried it out there. And I got my butt kicked. But when I came back, he headlined me, kept the work, you know, but I went out and I got a little more experience on the road, and, and um, it did me a lot of good. It, it made me see a different scene, it made me get out of my bubble in Kansas City, and I feel like any time a comic tries anything in another town, it's going to help, you know? Yeah. It's just for a week, and you can get to Des Moines and see what their comedy scene's like, or Omaha, you know? Yeah, that's what I tell people about going on the road, is that's where you learn where everything's funny, not just... You know, because you go on the road and you know, have a get, you'll have a bit that usually does really, like in your home club, it kills. Well, all of a sudden on the road, it just does okay. And some bit you were gonna, and some bit you were gonna throw away, all of a sudden does really well on the road, and you're like, oh wow. And then you figure out, you you just you just start to figure out what's funny everywhere you go. You know, not not just, and that's how you become, you know, and that's how you learn how to do all kinds of different crowds. Like I never wanted to be like. I never wanted to come off stage and be like, oh, that wasn't my crowd. Well, they're people, aren't they? They, they speak English, don't they? Then you're, they're your fucking people. You know? Yeah. Um, I never I wanted... Mean, you can get trapped in that local thing. Like when I went to Boston, one of the first shows I went to watch was a huge comedy club up there called Nick's Comedy Stoppers. Uh, 
And I went in one night, and there was a Boston comic on stage. Can't remember who it was. Probably should, but I don't. Um, and he's just killing, killing. People are falling out of their chairs. The guy's having a great set. I didn't get any of the jokes because it was all local references. Yeah. You know, so he's killing, but to a guy like me who just showed up in Boston, I don't know about the big dig. I don't know about what, what goes on in Harvard Square or whatever, but he's doing all these local things and just the crowd's dying, you know, so take a guy like that, hilarious with those jokes in Boston, uh, put him in uh, put him in Little Rock, okay? Now what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do when you can't talk about, you know, uh, whatever. Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I had to follow a guy like that in San Diego one time, and he was just murdering, doing crowd work and all local shit. And I went up, and they're just like, you know, they didn't, they didn't want to fucking listen to my ass after that. But that, uh, what's the worst gig you've ever done? Do you, do you remember? Does anything stand out? Yeah, I remember a couple that really stood out, and it, they were bad gigs because they were just bad ideas to do a show at certain places. I think the people just didn't want comedy. Uh, the, wor- the worst one I was with, I took Dale Hilton, another funny local KC guy. Uh, me and Dale went up to, uh, it was somewhere in, way out in North Dakota. It was at a, one of those American Indian casinos. And uh, it was open, the room they put us in was open to the casino, so you got all the boo 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 going on. Yeah. And there was a giant dance floor between the stage and the first row of seats, you know. And they were trying to start the show, and nobody would come forward and even sit in chairs. Like, it's like they just didn't want to hear it, you know? Yeah. And uh, they finally, they bribed people with free booze if they would just, they'd get a free pitcher of beer or a free drink if they would just come up and watch the comedy show. And they and I are back going, man, if these people don't want it, don't make us do it, you know? But they ended up making us do it. And it was just brutal. You know, you got four people trying to listen. You got the casino noise going on. You got people at the bar. You're annoying them. They're trying to watch something on TV. And you have to do 45. And people just want you to shut up. <laughs> you know? It's like you're annoying them. And I remember just getting off stage that night going, well, A, I hope the check clears. And B, who decided this was a great idea in this room to try stand-up? Yeah. Because this, and, and I swear the gig was over in two weeks. Two weeks later, I heard, yeah, they quit doing comedy. I'm like, they should have never started. Yeah. But it was it was awful. It was brutal. It, 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 it was a fourteen hour drive for us to get there. <laughs> so you know, you're just like, wow, that was one of the worst experiences of comedy in my life. It's not why I got into this. That's not how I want to show the field ever again. Yeah, and I imagine they paid pretty good if you drove that far. So you're thinking, you're thinking yeah, like, if you're gonna, worth it, but if you're it, gonna, you know, after a while, you're like, wow, the show was so bad that I, the money doesn't even really make you feel better. Yeah, like if you're gonna pay me this much, this kind of money, why don't you put any effort into making it a decent show? I just, I've never understood yeah. that. But I guess they have to like spend that money or something. But casinos can be some of the most brutal shit ever. I mean, just. True. Just ever. And it's one of those things where it pays to really have a tight act, so you can just be like, you can just stand there, and it's still like getting kicked in the balls for 45 minutes. <laughs> the thing I've always thought about casino shows, if you have a crowd at your casino show, if they were winning in the casino, they wouldn't be at your show. So basically everyone's just lost a bunch of money and they're pissed off. <laughs> it's like, well, I guess I'll watch the free comic. Yeah. You know, so they're kind of a tough crowd to start with, because... Typically speaking, if you're winning money at a casino, you're not going to watch a show, you know, so. Yeah, I, I, I just did, uh, I just did the Springfield Reggae Festival for my friend Josh Heinrichs, and, and I had, I had a lot of fun, because I just did, I was just in a good mood for it, but 
and people that were listening were really really enjoyed it and they said some nice things afterwards and and so it wasn't it definitely wasn't the worst gig I've ever done but as far as the audience like like what I was talking to it was literally like I was at a a really crowded subway. Have you seen that movie Crocodile Dundee at the end where they're like, where, where he, it was like that, except it was like everyone was talking. And I was just on a stage and, and doing my jokes. I had to do three 15-minute sets. And the first one was okay because they hadn't seen a band yet. But then after they'd seen the band and people started drinking and all that, it was literally like just doing comedy at a, at a, at a, you know, at a rock show. And and they were just the people that 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 liked it loved it, um, but it was it was crazy. And I was like, man, if you don't have an act, you couldn't you couldn't do this because you have to just be able to stand there and just take it. And by that third set, that's the kind of mood I was in. I was like, fucking bring it on, you know? Like some guy some guy tried to come on. It was almost like it was like Kuma, it was like Kumite comedy. It was just like you know what this is this is as bad as it can get, and I'm gonna have as much fun with it as I can. And, uh, yeah. you know, it turned That's out, it, you can do. Yeah. yeah, you can't, you can't yeah, piss in the wind on those. You had to do comedy, you had to do comedy at Sturgis, so he's got the motorcycles revving, people are wasted drunk, and he's up there just trying to get a laugh on some joke, you know, and you could just, and he, yeah, he actually said the show, it was like comedy Vietnam, <laughs> it's like, it was just a terrible, awful situation, <laughs> but you have to plug through, you know, and I remember one night, I don't remember what the circumstance was, I remember watching you on stage, and... You were really angry about something, and I and uh, I think you mentioned this to me after the show, but I noticed it while you're on stage. You were squeezing the mic stand so tight, but if you were white knuckling, that thing you were so angry. And you kept under control, and you did your jokes, but boy, I knew inside you, and something was just burning you up. Man, it was a, that was the funniest part of the whole show to me, was watching you just bury that anger long enough to tell some jokes yeah that that's still a trick i do if i if i hate a crowd i'll just squeeze the shit out of that microphone and just and just and and that's that's the only way anybody would know um i like to think but especially now that i don't drink it was a little hard to control my anger when i wasn't drink when i was drinking but now that i don't i just squeeze the shit out of that microphone if i don't like a crowd i used to I, i used to uh I used to pinch my leg sometimes. Like if they wouldn't laugh, I'd pinch the shit out of my leg just to get through it. Like, ugh, you fuckers. Wow. <laughs> Not like a lot, but just yeah, just to give myself a little. Just like, oh, this is really going bad. You're all right. You're all right. <laughs> you get home and get in the shower and look at your leg. You're like, I gotta write some better jokes because they obviously aren't working. I'm bruised up. <laughs> yeah. So. But, but yeah, yeah, but I think a lot of those, a lot of times the shows aren't just completely stupid and awful. You know, sometimes, you, and I don't like to blame crowds, and I don't like to blame venues. If I have a tough night, I'll, I'll usually take blame myself. I was off, or, but there's been a few. I'm like, that can't possibly have been all me. You know, those people were angry. They were not in the mood for the jokes. The, the venue was terrible. But, you know, yeah. I do think shows like that can make you a better comic, because you learn a lot more from what does the work than what does. So, I've, I've had, after I've, a while, you get kind of tired of learning. I've heard comics say uh, it's never the crowd's fault, and I go, eh, sometimes it's completely yeah, their fault. I, I think that can be the case. <laughs> I, I try not to blame a crowd. And I usually give a crowd what they're giving me. If the crowd's in a good mood and having fun, we're going to have a great night. And if I'm up there for 10 minutes and I'm just it's like pulling teeth, I'm like, well, I'm just going to put on the record, and you guys, um, we'll just get through this together, and then we, then we can part ways and never see each other again. That's how it's going to be. One night, Gallag- Gallagher was backstage in Vegas, and I came off stage, and... Uh, I go, I really didn't like that crowd. I go, they just, I go, I go, if crowds had any idea 
how much better we are when they're good, they would always be good. And Gallagher goes, <laughs> Gallagher goes, I always say the crowd gets exactly the show they deserve. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with Gallagher on that. I really do. I'll go out for the first 10 minutes and I'll give them my all. But I'm up there and I'm trying to have a good time and I'm selling it and I'm, I'm doing it with my ear. And these are jokes I've done, you know. I'm, they're not they're not great to me. I've done them a hundred times. But if after 10 minutes I just can't get them to buy in, I'm like, well, we're just going to plow through now, you know. Yeah. I hate to say it, you guys, but if you're not giving me nothing, then what do you expect from me? Yeah, <laughs> it's... I, I tell people all the time, it's like having a conversation. If I stood here and talked to you for five minutes and you never responded to me, I'd be like, all right, well, I'm done talking to you, motherfucker. But, <laughs> but on stage, you can't do that. You can't just be like, all right, well, I'm done. You're like, well, you got to stand up here and take it for 45. And if you don't have an act, good luck, buddy. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, we could go on and on about the state of bad shows in the business, but I'll tell you what, man, it's it's been a it's been a fun ride. And and some days when I really get frustrated and I see other people like getting uh, their shot, their star to shine, and I feel I actually do feel happy for, happier for people than I used to. I used to get really jealous and salty, but now it's like I know it's just kind of a random spin of the wheel, you know. And I'm I'm talking about people that have real talent. I mean, some of the funniest comics we both know. No one knows who they are, you know, for, for the most part. Yeah. You know, there are guys and, and girls out there, and you're just like, oh my God, that person is hilarious. Why aren't they famous? Yeah. You know, and then you see people on TV, on Red Hacket, name 50 other comedians that could smoke this person, you know, as far as cleverness and joke structure, blah, blah, blah. But, I, I don't have the energy to get mad at people for their success anymore. I'm just like, eh, I don't know. You know, yeah, so we feel a little bit of jealousy going, man, that would be great. Because you know their life is going to change exponentially. I know some people that's getting ready to happen to. I know some people that just got a show picked up and they're, they're going to be on television and I'm going to turn on my TV and there they are. And I'm probably not going to watch, but, <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah. More power to them. Yeah, and, and um, you know, and I still I still love it. I still love, um, I still love great crowds. Um, it's, you know... Yeah. I did some shows this weekend in Richmond that, you know, it was a pretty mixed crowd. and Well, m mainly black, actually. And it was, you know, a good black audience is just so fucking good. <laughs> you know, I mean, they were just, they were just into everything and laughing so hard where you could just, like, pause and kind of stand there and, like, appreciate how hard people were laughing, that kind of thing. And that's what, that's the reason, above anything else, that I can't ever stop doing it from the first laugh i ever got on stage i was addicted to it you know and yeah you know i, I kind of need it like if i haven't really been on the road for three weeks or something i, I start to you know feel like i i need you that you don't feel right you don't yeah. feel quite right you're like what I'm, i should be moving right now yeah well uh let's switch gears a little bit and uh Tell us about about being a father. Is that the best thing that's ever happened to you? I know you've always, uh, it seems like it is for you. Oh, yeah. Um, my daughter is, uh, she's the reason I'm, I'm doing anything right now. I mean, I, I, I can't say enough about what it's been like for me to be a dad. And I was really nervous to be a dad. I didn't know if I was going to be any good at it. And I hope I've noticed over the course of being a father and, and other people, my friends and stuff, having kids, some people that you really don't think are going to take to being a, a parent, 
just shine in that area. And um, I do my best, you know, I try to be a good dad and everything, but it's it's just one of those things that's like, it's the whole joy of my life, you know, it becomes about her and everything. It just switches your focus from me, 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 to now that my life is now more about this other little person. And uh, I think my, my, uh, my author, I like Christopher Hitchens, said it best. He says that he says having a child is like watching your heart run around in someone else's little body, and yeah. that's really true. I mean, you just everything that you feel and think is kind of put into them. You know, I can't say enough about my daughter, and then the, the hopes I have for her, and the things that you know she might do someday if, if everything goes right and she stays on the right path and everything. You know, you just have really high hopes that she'll have you know a great, wonderful life, and but it's it's. There's very little that could have eclipsed my comedy. I mean, very little that would interest me enough or make me want to think about it, but she's, she's the, not the only thing. So. Yeah, well, a friend of mine who was always kind of a, you know, not very emotional, you know, and wrestler, kind of a tough guy and all that shit growing up, uh, he said, you know, I used to hear people talk about how they'd die for their kids and that kind of stuff, and I'd kind of roll my eyes like whatever, you know, and that, now that I have a kid, I totally, I would die for that kid, no question. And, you know, before, before that always made him kind of roll his eyes, and now he's like, yeah, now I totally get it. You don't, you can't fully understand it until you have your own, and, and I don't have any yet, but uh, I, I think I want to, definitely. And, and I, like, I like hearing that kind of stuff, especially with having a daughter, because that, and, you know, just, some of my best friends have daughters. Justin has a daughter, and uh, um, a lot of my friends from high school, my, one of my best buddies, Brian Pinnock, has twin daughters, and... You know, they can't say enough, you know, about their daughters and all that. And it just scares me because the shit that comes out of people's mouth more than anything, I feel like I'd be on guard all the time. Um, yeah. But, you know, and another friend of mine said, I was like, what's it like having a daughter? And he was like, it's the, he said something like, it's the best, the biggest sense of duty he's ever had. And like honor, like, yeah. like, like he doesn't, you know, and it's not a, you know, not in a bad way by any means. You know, it was just, and, and my old yeah. man, my old manager was like, you know, you, all the little shit that you worry about now, once you have a kid, all that stuff becomes pretty unimportant, you know? Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. Um, Less important by a long shot. And then, you know, just to bring up something that's been happening over the last couple of days, at least on Facebook, and, the, and all the women posting the Me Too thing about being yeah. sexually harassed or sure. you worry about that how's my daughter going to go out in the world among apparently something that's just uh, rampant in society it blows my mind how many of those I've seen from from people that you know I'm like wow and, and your worries go up exponentially about a million things you got drugs and boys and my daughter's 12 now and she's going to be in cars and she's going to be you know will she be texting and driving I read a, a study the other day it said the more teenagers you put in a car, the, the, the higher the percentage they're going to get in the wreck is because they're paying attention to their phones and talking to each other and, you know, it's, yeah. it's, your worries go way up, especially as they get older, but, you know, what I've tried to do is lay a good groundwork for her, give her good common sense and make her realize, hey, when you feel something's not a good idea or not a good decision, listen to that voice inside your head, you know, because you're usually going to be right and that's all you can do though and I kind of keep from my dad because I have a sister, and my dad, my dad wasn't heavy-handed with my daughter. He let her have her freedoms and stuff and everything, and didn't try to, you know, protect her too much. But um, you know, he, he kept a vigilant eye on her and tried to steer her in the right direction. And she turned out, she turned out great. So, 
you know, and like you know, I don't. I think some people can micromanage kids and try to try to control them a little too much, especially during the teenage years. You know, you can't let them go completely off the charts, but you have to expect that's coming. Yeah, and and out. and for the record, what you said about being on the yacht and two girls and all that—that that was way before <laughs> Olivia was born. Um, <laughs> My point was uh, with that is you can be completely satisfied in this business. It seems like, but still want more. It's like nothing's ever good enough. And I always felt like I always felt like the squeaky wheel gets the oil with some of the clubs and stuff. If you send your promo and just keep, I need it, I need this, I need that. Kind of let that. Uh, but I have seen people that should be really satisfied with their with their careers and lives, and just don't seem to be. Like they can always find something to complain about. Yeah. Know? I think a lot of a lot of people, myself included, sometimes have a grass is greener, and then you get over there and you're like, ah, well, shit, this ain't greener. It's just from a different angle. God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> That's right. This isn't even grass. God damn it! I've been fucked again. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's been a fun ride. And, I, and the, the weird thing to bring up is it kind of ties the two together. Like my daughter, I don't know what she thinks about what I do. I don't know how she, you know, what she has to tell her teachers or her friends, parents, so what does your dad do for a living? Oh, he's a comedian. It always felt like, what is she, how does that feel to her? Like, most people, you know, but hopefully she can just go and, uh, you know, I've heard, she told me, she told a couple of her teachers that I was a comedian and I'd worked with, like, Larry the Cable Guy, and she said the teacher's like, oh, really? I'm gonna look him up on the internet and stuff, and I'm like, well, you might want to tell him to do that, not in front of class. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but, well, your but, stuff's all pretty know, clean, though. I mean, you, you know, that's not something that you you would have to worry about with your daughter, like like oh, I don't want her to see my my bit about me with a donkey. You know, I mean, you don't have any crap like that. <laughs> you know, not really. Most of the stuff, uh, most of the stuff I do is just about my family and stuff. And I think if she gets older, she'll just see the humor in it, even if it's a little, you know, off. But how how is uh, how is Dale Johan? about this last night but when my stepdad came down and I don't know why but some for some reason I had convinced James to he was going to help me put together a, this futon I had just bought and, and before I knew it I was just watching James try to do it and then and then my and then my stepdad Rob comes in and poor James is trying to put this fucking futon together for my dumbass and then and then Rob is just standing over him going that's not how you do that and he, and then he and then Every time he would correct you, he'd go, I'm no genius, but that's not how you do that. And, and James is just like, well, then why don't you do it, goddammit? 
think I'm going to be a pretty funny old guy. I don't see myself giving a shit about a lot of things. Well, the older I get, the less the shit I give. I, um, I still have fun doing comedy, but man, it just turned into something that's like, that's what I do. I'm going to do it the best I can for myself. And I know that, uh, you know, that every day there's 50 new comics popping up and, uh, you know, there's a, there's, there may be room for everybody, there may not, you know, but I've had a good run. I'm not complaining. Yeah, you can't fight them. All you can do is, is do what you do and you know I enjoy going on the road about like now now I probably do about 25 weeks a year and uh you know that keeps that that's about two a week and or two a month and that's pretty that's enough for me for the most part you know like if I do 30 that's fine but um you know when I get home it's it's dawned on me how little I like to actually do like I'm cool with not doing with reading or watching a movie or you know I like to exercise, but other than that, I'm pretty damn lazy. Um, and and the older I've gotten, the more I'm okay with that. Rather than I used to beat myself up like, oh, you ought to be doing something. It's like, well, if I like doing more shit, I would be. <laughs> but, <laughs> exactly. I was telling my brother the other day we were cooking a couple steaks, sitting in the yard in the lawn chairs, and I go, you know, I work awful damn hard, and all I want to do is get back home and sit in the lawn chair. I go, I don't know why. I'm on the road, you know, so many weeks a year, but all I really want to do is sit in this chair and have a cold beer and eat a steak. Like I work damn hard. To, Chair. Yeah, so. yeah. I uh, simple pleasures, but uh, I won't keep you on here forever. We've already been rambling for about an hour. Um, I do appreciate it. Um, like I, I was saying at the beginning of this podcast, I always, uh, you know, you were always kind of like an older brother or an older cousin or something. That you know, uh, that Polly Shore week we did, I, I rode. We had, it was it was seriously one of the best weeks I've ever done in comedy, just because it was so new to me. And you and I got along well, and I, I learned a lot from you. I probably asked you a million questions, and uh, and you know I, I made a friend that day, and then and then you started never fucking calling me back. Yeah, well, that's how my friendship works, buddy. <laughs> yeah, you're like you're like a you 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 treat me like you're a really hot chick, and I'm trying to nail you or something. Well, I'm never satisfied. I'll tell you what, you moved out to Los Angeles. And you were one of the people that I saw, like, the people you see on stage, you go, this person has a clue. This person uh, understands comedy, they got it, and they're going to be fine. And I always kind of knew that about you. You had you had a good sense of stand-up from the start. And I can't tell you how proud I am that you went to L.A., something I've never done. And uh, I wish you all the best out there, man. And congratulations on your marriage and everything. And uh, you really, I mean, take, take the fact that you just wanted to be a teacher and you had five years there where you were doing other things and you changed your mind. And you made up your mind you're going to be a stand-up comic, and look at you now. So yeah, so, that was the first time in awesome. that was the first time in four years that I had any clarity when I was in college. I was like, oh shit, Bill Hicks, the funniest guy I've yeah. ever heard, and I'd never heard of him. I can do this for a living, even if I ever get famous. Fuck, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen George Carlin when I was a kid, and it goes back to even the, even the, even the clothes he wore. We were talking about clothes to wear on stage. John Carlin was just always. You know, green 
sweatshirt and pants. Nothing, nothing. Focus on my words. Don't look at my clothes. He's not trying to sell you anything like character. He just went out and did his thing. And I remember uh, being 13, 14, listening to Eddie Murphy tapes and uh, Cheech and Chong. I, I just, I knew in my heart all along that I belonged in that group somehow. You know, I didn't really know how. But it was ingrained me. I did my first comedy show in kindergarten. I took a wagon. My mom made a clown suit. I walked out in front of my kindergarten class, and I had a wagon full of trumps. And all I remember, one joke, I pulled out a rubber duck, and I threw it at the crowd, and I yelled, duck! And, you know, I've been killing ever since. Still using that joke, too. <laughs> but, I mean, I was in kindergarten when I did my first comedy show, and I've, just, I've always loved comedy. I have a great respect for the, for the, the you know, everybody that I watched growing up. Well, you you might. I'm I'm sorry. I was just gonna say that. Go ahead. Sorry, I keep interrupting you. true you'll appreciate this story because i know carlin was a big influence on you um i guess richard from the comedy magic club told me that he would sit he would come to the club early and he would sit in front of the mirror and like let's say he was doing an hour and 20 minutes he would do that hour and 20 minutes verbatim in front of the mirror and then 15 minutes later go out and do an hour and 20 minutes for the crowd i mean verbatim he would have the he was such you know everything that's why like he had a heckler one night and and I and there's something on tape where you can find it, and he just went off on this guy because it was like, you know, it, it, he was so meticulous about the words. It's all about the words, and when you're taking it away, when you're shouting shit out, you're taking away from the words, and he just lost it on this guy. Um, I'm sure he did. <laughs> yeah. Because he's stepping on his masterpiece, you know. He's worked really hard on the, getting these words exactly the way he wants them. Carlin was very, very particular about that, I think. Yeah, and, uh, that's what I tell way, people. You know, my act... My act has a flow to it. My act has callbacks, and I have I have I have set up the way I want it. And when someone throws a branch right in the middle of that, it's not just that they flubbed the joke. Now they've kind of derailed the train. You know? Exactly. It's like you're make. It's like you're painting a picture, and some butthole comes by and sticks his thumb in it. Like, well, <laughs> man, you didn't just mess up that part. Now I got to redo all this other. Sh- you know, like, you dummy. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot. I think recently they found a, they, uh, someone released on the internet uh, some pictures of George Carlin. I, I think it was Carlin's files of joke files, and just the amount of stuff that he had. He had a golf file. He had a you know uh, just a file on every topic you get under the sun, and he had he filed his jokes away. And you know that's that's a, something I think every comic would love to have is just a file cabinet full of their own organized. Thoughts. I need a joke about a guitar. Okay, I'll find a guitar file or whatever. Yeah. You know, that's pretty cool. When somebody else, he, he, somebody asked him how he wrote so much stuff, and he goes, I write one minute a week. That's how I come up with a new yeah. hour every year. And when you break it down like that, you're like, well, shit, that's not that much. And a minute a week? <laughs> you know? I mean, goddamn, that's 10 seconds a day, 8 seconds a day. You can do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't mean they're all funny, but hey, you got a whole lot of stuff written. So, but yeah, uh, that's, that's part of the
you know, it's, it's getting a little tough for, for comic. Comic, baseball comedy keeps changing, but I think the, the funny people will figure out how to navigate and yeah. be fine, so. Yeah. And we got no choice. We can't do anything else. We're unqualified for literally every exactly. everything I'll else. Be trucks if I quit doing this tomorrow. You're not so. going to put together futons for a living. Anyway, I'll let you go, buddy. But I uh, really do appreciate you talking to me, and uh, let's try and stay in better touch than we have. All right, Jim. Good luck to you out there, and uh, I'll see you. I hope I see you soon. Next time you're in town, we'll go out and have some Kansas barbecue. Yeah, and I'm definitely going to uh, be in touch with you about maybe putting together a thing, and if it works out, then it works out. So. Yeah, that'll never happen. Okay, talk to you later, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. All right, man. Bye, bye. All right, everybody, that was James Johan. We probably could have talked for a couple hours. It would have been easy. But um, anyway, that's my buddy. Uh, go to timgathercomedy.com. Check out the dates I got coming up. Need to update my website. Um, and uh, yeah, Bo Making it Happen, making it happen.com for a little Bo Making. And uh, I think Josh Heinrichs is going to play us out on a song here. I'm going to upload that here pretty soon. So anyway, God bless all of you. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Give me the